I'm Megan Rosenthal. And I'm Alexis Lee. And this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mayo Lab Podcast. My name is Alexis Lee, and always joined by Megan Rosenthal. And we have a very special guest and very special topic for you all today. Um, recovery, being in recovery, what that is, what that looks like. Um, it touches, I think, a lot of our listeners. It touches myself. It touches my family. Um, and it touches a lot of people that are in this work with us. And so we're very excited. And we would like to welcome Henry or Hank, we will call him Holmes, to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of how you got into this work and your story a little bit? As much um, little as you'd like. I know it's a loaded question. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm originally from Amory, Mississippi. Um, I graduated from Ole Miss in, I don't remember when, 2003, uh, with bachelor's in criminal justice and in uh, psychology. I... <clears throat> At that point in time, I was uh, planning on going into the FBI, but I was one of those people who were in school for criminal justice when 9-11 happened and it switched mm -hmm. up the ball game for everybody. Yeah. Um, so I was told that I needed to go to law school if I ever planned on getting in the FBI. Uh, went to law school, hated it, went one year and absolutely hated it. So I started looking for a job and um, saw a classified ad that said uh, role models wanted. And I thought that that sounded interesting. And so I ended up spending the next eight years of my life working at a long-term outdoor residential treatment facility for troubled teens um, in Paint Rock, Alabama. Um, and then that whole industry kind of went belly up mm -hmm. about 2008, 2009 when the housing market crashed. Uh, so I went and worked at an all-adolescent female lockdown facility for a couple of years. And... Um, then I got word that the Oxford Treatment Center was looking for someone to do to mm -hmm. build a, and construct a ropes course uh, to do experiential therapy. Um, I have a background in that. Um, so I told them, sure, I was interested in coming and building a ropes course. So for the past 10 plus years, I've been out at the Oxford Treatment Center in Etta um, as an experiential counselor. Uh, built a ropes course, run the ropes course out there. I also do some lectures out there. Um, we have a facility garden. I will admit that uh, this past summer, it's not done what it what it didn't it didn't get as much attention as mm -hmm. it needed to get. Um, but we used to we also used to do uh, camping, kayaking, paddle boarding. So mm -hmm. for the past ten plus years, that's where I've been um, working in this field, and I am currently um, in school master's program uh, for clinical mental health counseling in pursuit of getting. An LPC so that uh, I can eventually make the transition from being outdoors to being indoors. <laughs> um, I, after working at Paint Rock Valley with, uh, with those adolescents, uh, I loved it. And I came to realize that the reason that I loved it so much was I was a troubled teen mm -hmm. and probably needed to have been at some place like Paint Rock Valley. Um, but uh, resources funding and my parents didn't know about it so mm -hmm. you know I didn't go to that type of place but I really enjoyed helping those kids there and then um, being in addiction is something that I, I totally grasp I totally get it mm -hmm. um, and so you know I enjoy helping people that are struggling with substance use disorder 
I love that. And we're going to get into the experiential therapy because I, I love talking about that. Um, but before we dig in and really get into it, can you talk about what being in recovery means? Um, and kind of, I know I'm in recovery and I know I get a lot of questions, a lot of people, what does it mean to be sober versus in recovery uh, also? And I'm sure you get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. There's not a short answer to this. There's not. Right. That's, That's why okay. we're here. There's, there's not a short <laughs> yes. answer to this. I find it easier to look at it from <clears throat> medical terminology, all right? Like if you were to go have surgery, you go have outpatient surgery, inpatient surgery. Whenever you wake up from surgery, you're in a room that is called the recovery room, mm-hmm. all right? And uh, And that's the immediate type of recovery, like you're waking up from surgery, they're making sure that like nothing's going wrong, you know, that everything's okay. But but the actual recovery or or the actual healing process actually happens once you leave the hospital, uh, those days, those weeks after you actually leave the hospital. So I think about it in that perspective, and I look at uh, uh, going into treatment as being the, being like, I mean, being like outpatient surgery, all mm-hmm. right, or being like some shape, form, or fashion of surgery. And, and I've actually said this to patients before that, like, it should be uncomfortable here. You are metaphorically doing surgery to fix your mm-hmm. emotions, your mental state, uh, to, to learn a different way of living. And that should be as uncomfortable as being, like I said, having outpatient surgery. And so I think that the since we are a licensed healthcare facility, I think that the initial recovery begins to happen in the treatment facility, but that actual recovery takes place outside of the treatment facility. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at recovery as being an active process, mm-hmm. all right? Um, like what you, what you just alluded to, what's the difference in being in recovery and being sober? Well, to me, sobriety is part of the recovery process, but it's not the only part of the recovery process. Um, I think of recovery as being an active process, which means getting involved with some shape, form, or fashion of a program. Um, Obviously, people know about AA and NA, Mm -hmm. um, but those are not the only recovery programs. Mm -hmm. I mean, if AA and NA is not your jam, there's all sorts of other recovery programs, whether it be Celebrate Recovery, Refuge Recovery, Dharma Recovery, Smart Recovery. I think that that you have to work some shape, form, or fashion of a program to actually be in recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it's also more than just that. Uh, The program, a lot of times people get this confused. The program is not the meetings. The meetings are the meetings, all right? The program is actually working the steps, getting a sponsor. And I think that all of that is needed for recovery as, as well. But then it gets, it goes deeper than that. And that's where I think that like advocacy comes into play, um, getting involved, networking, socially, uh, service work, altruism comes into play mm-hmm. with, with mm-hmm. recovery. Um, as far as like your question about the difference in just recovery and just being sober, I mean, that's what old timers would refer to as being a dry drunk or, or a dry addict. Yeah. That if the only thing that made this person happy was the substance, they remove the substance. And so now what have they got? Mm-hmm. I mean, if they're, if they're miserable using and they're miserable because they use and you just remove the substance, well, they're still miserable. All mm-hmm. right. Uh, and that's where it comes in uh, of like, having to change attitudes, having to change behaviors, having to change thoughts. If none of that's, if none of that stuff changes and all that you've really done is remove the substance, 
It's an, mm-hmm. what have you actually done? Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's an actual active process, in my opinion. Recovery is an actual active process. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I think, too, there's this misconception of you have to go to treatment to, to be in recovery. And I know I never went to treatment, but I do work the program and I do do the things. And so if that's not accessible to you or you, that's not, you know there's all these whole you're talking about the resources, money, finance and stuff. So there is this way to do it, but there are people, it is the program. It is the community to actively do it. And I think that, I think that going to treatment makes it easier. Oh yeah. Um, would for sure make it a whole lot easier. But like you said, there are people who don't have to go to treatment. I just think that anybody who has mm-hmm. the ability to go to treatment, if nothing else, if, if, if we're just going to spend this 30 day process of drying out, um, and you have the, the resources and have the ability to go to treatment, then for sure you should go to treatment. But again, I mean, people have been doing this for years without mm-hmm. having to go to treatment. But I just look at it as if you do have the ability to soften that blow, especially if we're talking about uh, the whole detoxification process, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that's going to be a whole lot easier if you're in a licensed medical facility. Mm-hmm. Can you has, talk about that process a little bit for those that don't know? <sighs> The detoxification process, depending upon what you're coming off of, um, it, is it can be extremely difficult. I mean, the 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 only two things, the only two the only two th- chemicals that you're going to detoxify from that you run the risk of dying off of is is people that are, are coming off of benzos or people that are coming off of alcohol. And a lot of times, people are shocked by that one, but but it is. You go into what's called delirium tremens, um, which I've never experienced personally, but I have witnessed it to where like you're hallucinating, mm-hmm. um, the shakes, um, blood pressure all over the place, heart rate all over the place, um, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen in my experience, what works is is, is we use like a an Ativan taper to like slowly step this person down but to where they are being medically monitored to Mm -hmm. where they're not just at home like again white knuckling Mm -hmm. it trying to get through all of that um and the detoxification process can last anywhere from five to seven days now as i said the only two things that 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 you're going to literally die off coming off of is alcohol and benzos but Probably from from what I've witnessed in my experience, the, the hardest thing to come off of is probably the opiates, mm. um, just because there is what's known as post-acute withdrawals. And what that is, is, is that once you've gone through that detox, that initial detox period of five, seven, ten days, that all of a sudden you start to feel better. Mm-hmm. And what I've witnessed is, is that uh, somewhere... I just always say somewhere between day 16 and day 23, you're going to go into post-acute withdrawals and then you're going to feel worse than you ever felt when you were initially coming off of, uh, of the opiates. And during that, that post-acute withdrawal, that 16 and 20, day 16 through 23, it best resembles like a really bad flu where mm-hmm. nose is running, where they've got fever, where heart rate's all over the place. Um, but... Y- coming off of that if you can make it through that day 16 through 23 you're in the clear and but again that's just coming off of basic mm-hmm. opiates um we're coming off of something like methadone is going to be a lot longer of mm-hmm. a process just mm-hmm. because it stores differently than mm-hmm. where the rest of the opiates store so that post-acute withdrawal for somebody coming off methadone may not happen till like month six or nine mm-hmm. you know wow. 
Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I love the I love the analogy that you made between like recovery being kind of like getting surgery, right? And that it's meant to be uncomfortable. And you've talked a little bit now about kind of what the detoxification process looks like. And you've mentioned also that recovery is an active process. So in in recovery, in treatment, if you're there, you're getting detoxified, you are working through that process. But what other skills are folks leaving with, right? Because it's not just about getting the, the stuff out of you. It's also about what are the things you're going to do to fill in, like you said, the stuff that was missing that made you want to use the substances to begin with. Right. Um, we provide psychoeducation, uh, learning about addiction, learning about the disease of addiction. But then there's also, and this is kind of where the, the experiential aspect of it mm-hmm. comes into play, and in my opinion, what sets the Oxford Treatment Center apart is that we do utilize so much experiential uh, therapy uh, in hopes of giving people ideas for things that they can use for coping skills. Mm-hmm. Um, if nothing else, use them for coping skills. It's the reason that we have meditation, mindfulness. It's the reason that we do music therapy. It's the reason that we do yoga. It's the reason that we do art is to start getting people thinking about things that they can use as coping skills. As far as like, uh, um, as, as other skills learn or, or they, they go over, um, we have a group that's literally called Life Skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what they do on there in there on a week to week basis, but I know that some of the stuff that's been discussed before is like things that we kind of like take for granted, like making a budget, um, mm-hmm. learning how to cook, like being able mm-hmm. to manage your money, being able to manage your time, um, and then we also have case management and. and for people who need to find a job, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I think that in some of those life skills groups, and maybe they talk about resume building, maybe they talk about uh, um, being able to write a resume, um, what it looks like to dress the part, you know, for, mm-hmm, for job mm-hmm. interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that all of that gets gets discussed. And what's interesting to me about and where my mind initially went whenever you asked that question is, is that, you know, um, drug rehab, all right? Rehab means rehabilitation. What, what, what we found or, or what, what I've witnessed is that a lot of times they need to be habilitated because mm-hmm. they, you know, in order to rehabilitate, it's first saying that you've been habilitated, but a lot of times what you find is is that people have grown up in this culture, uh, the drug culture, families, you know, generational, it's been passed down and passed down. And so they've never been habilitated. So then how do you go about trying to habilitate somebody and monitor their detoxification and making sure that they're, I mean, it, it's, it's an ongoing, it's a big process with a lot of different moving parts. But I, th- I think that at, the, at the, the baseline level, what we try to do is provide them with that psychoeducation, give them support, let them know that this is possible. This is not, you know, this is not going to be something that like you can't do, mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. I mean, addicts are some of the most strong-willed people on the face of this earth. Mm-hmm. And being able to wake up every morning without two pennies to rub together and manage to get high all day long, that requires willpower. And so I think that, the, 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 that a lot of it is, is that they just need to believe that it is possible to live a life in recovery and hopefully we provide them hopefully they pick up some necessary tools while the, while they are there. I think that's a brilliant observation about 
how complicated the recovery process is for a lot of folks, right? Your your idea that they need to be habilitated first implies and, and, and points out an, that these folks were struggling f- well before they ended up at your doorstep, right? right? They were in a position and they had, for whatever reason, lacked the skills, lacked the support, lacked the experience, lacked the opportunity to to do some of the things that that maybe other folks in other circumstances take for granted, right? Having a family where, you know, mom or dad or some combination thereof are at home, you get meals every night, you get, you know, you don't get exposed to the drug culture, you don't get exposed to all of those different things as a young person. Um, and and I think it's I think it's really it's it's a great observation to you know to point out that this is not what everyone's life right. is. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 use and abuse of substances is a, is just a sign and a symptom. Mm-hmm. Of a of a larger problem, mm-hmm. whatever that larger problem is, uh, whether that be anxiety, depression, um, OCD, post traumatic stress, trauma, that has to be addressed. In my opinion, it it almost it can't just it 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 cannot we cannot do it justice trying to address it in a thirty day residential right. treatment. We can start to open up that stuff, but it's not going to get delved into. And I think that that goes along with part of the recovery process is finding a counselor, finding somebody that you can open up to talk about the stressors, to talk about the trauma, to talk about whatever it is that has kept you uh, going back to the substance time and time again, because. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's a much larger issue at play mm-hmm. and that all all that you've been doing, the way that I've heard it explained best is, is that you've got this infection that's been growing inside of you and it has progressively continued to get worse. Uh, despite you thinking that it's getting better, it is progressively getting worse and that all that you've really been doing about this infection is putting a little triple antibiotic ointment on it, covering it up with a Band-Aid, hoping, wishing, praying that it'll get better despite the evidence that it's getting worse. Right. But to truly get rid of this infection, you have to metaphorically do some surgery on mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Cut, you, cut yourself open, stick your hands inside the wound, grab hold of the infection, get rid of it, and then sew yourself back up so mm-hmm. that you can heal. Mm-hmm. But until you do that, you are going to stay stuck in that insanity of doing the same thing over over and over and over again, hoping, right. wishing, mm-hmm. praying that the results will be different. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I think that leads so nicely into what the, the theme for this season has been, is this idea of stigma related to substance use and a lot of other topics. And so I'd, I'd be curious to know wh- what your observation is around the impact of stigma and stigmatization for folks who are using substances who end up in your treatment facility and in any of the other work that you've been involved in. This... I wish I had some mind-blowing great answer, but <laughs> I, I've got the same answer that most people are going to yeah. tell yeah. you is that it's 2023 and we we still don't view this as or there's a large part of society that does not view this as a disease. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is a disease. We have the science to back it up. They knew this back in the 30s when they wrote the big book. They didn't have all the science back then. Mm-hmm. But now we know the science that this is a treatable chronic medical disease that involves complex interactions amongst brain circuits, the genetics, the environment, and individual's life experiences. And I think for, for us to not look at this... For people to think that this is a choice is absolutely mind-boggling to me, all right? This is not a choice. Um, I've asked over the course of time 
uh, one of my lectures that I do on the hijacked brain, I, I ask the question, would anybody in this room choose to be an addict? And I can tell you that 0.0 times has anybody said that they would choose mm -hmm. to be an addict. Right. All right. Nobody chooses to be an addict. That's where uh, uh, it, it definitely does. It definitely starts with a choice. But that's not where the disease comes in. Right. The disease comes in on the back end of once you made that choice to pick up, you now no longer have that choice to put down. Mm -hmm. That's the one is too many, a thousand is never enough thing. All right. Uh, is that once, once, a, once a person makes the decision to start using, they're going to keep using until one of a couple of things happens. till they run out, they pass out, or they die from it. They just can't pick up and put down at will. And so I think one of the biggest stigmas is, is that, that oh, they're choosing to be this way. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, nobody chooses to run their life into the ground, uh, obliterating themselves and all the people that are closest to them, the people that love and care about them the most. Nobody chooses to do that. Let me just see how bad I can mess my life up. Like that, it, It's not. And I think that I think that that stigma of we're in 2023 and we've still got people who still are walking around in denial that this is a disease uh, is really stigmatizing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. stigmatizing to the patients uh, whenever their families tell them something to the effect of, you know, if you had more willpower, you could stop. If you wanted mm -hmm. to, you could just stop. If, you know, the moral failings, if you just had better morals that you mm -hmm. would, you would be able to stop. And it's, no, it's much more, it, 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 it's so much deeper than that. And it's, it's interesting to me that we stigmatize this disease, but why do we view it any differently than we would diabetes or heart disease or celiac disease, you know, mm -hmm. like why? And, and I guess because we do, we think that it starts with that choice. And so they're choosing to be this way. Mm -hmm. You are listening to the Mayo Lab podcast. For more information and resources, visit themayolab.com. Now, back to the episode. Can we cuz I think I think you brought you bring up something really important, right? Cuz you you made the distinction between like at first it is a choice to pick that thing up to begin with, but then there's something that goes on in their brain to make that no longer a choice. But I think it's the words there that folks get hung up on, right? Like so it is a choice, right? It definitely but starts with a choice. But it's not a choice maybe. And it, could you ex a, a, not a choice in the way that we think about it. Right? Like I choose to pick up the cupcake, I choose to do whatever. Can you talk to us a little bit about that choice in relation to, as you've already covered, the fact that for many of these people, this is a choice to treat something else that's going on, not a choice to simply get high. Right, right. I think that it's, I think that it could be argued that it is a disease of choice mm -hmm. and that it takes your ability to choose away because... Because the use and abuse of substances raises the dopamine level so high that, that they choose to ignore the consequences that are blatantly staring them in their mm -hmm. face, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, um, and despite the fact that all these consequences are there, they continue to go back to that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have – I know that in the, in the spring, y'all are getting into the whole brain mm -hmm. aspect of mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. all right. Um, there's there's so much at play that's going on in the but it but it's not just the brain it's that whole what you're talking about the whole environment uh, life experiences all of that stuff comes into play and whenever someone is needing to cope one of the easiest coping skills is hey let's go get high because mm -hmm. if I go get high if I go get drunk then I don't have to think about all that other 
bullshit, all this mm-hmm. stuff that's making me feel so bad whenever I'm high. And today it worked that I went down this path. I got high, so I didn't think about all that. Um, so the next time that this comes up, the next time these feelings come up, the next time these memories come up, the next time this loneliness comes up, in order to avoid that, I'm going to go walk down this path again and again and again. And what you do over time is is that you reinforce mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. path to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to, uh, <clears throat> right. if you were to be at an open field first thing in the morning when it's covered in dew or covered in frost, all right, and you're on this side of the field and you're feeling bad, but you know that if you go use and you walk this path through the field, you get to this other side and you feel better. And when you turn back around, what do you see? You see your footprints. And so tomorrow, the next day, you're on this side of the field feeling bad, but you can see your footprints that felt good. Now, I do have to go use to walk down that path, but you keep walking down that path and keep walking down that path. And over the course of, you know, five to seven days, that grass starts getting folded over. Somewhere around seven to 10 days, that grass starts dying out. Somewhere around 14, 17 days, there's not even grass there anymore. There's just a dirt path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know that this dirt path is going to work every single time to help me go from feeling bad to feeling good. I'm not going to try something new. I'm not going to walk a different path because there may be snakes over there. There may be mm-hmm. bugs over there. We'll go real Mississippi. There may be stickers over there. All right? <laughs> but I know that this path works and it helps me to avoid whatever I'm trying to avoid, whatever negative feelings, whatever negative emotions, whatever it is that I'm trying to not think about stress, trauma, whatever that mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. It, it just kind of puts it at bay. And so what you've done over time is, is that you've just reinforced it to where now you cross such a threshold, you cross such a barrier that now I'm not even having to think about it. It mm-hmm. becomes instinctual. Mm-hmm. My natural reaction, it becomes part of my survival mechanism is that anytime that I'm feeling anything that I don't want to feel, don't want to think, all I need to do is go get high and that's going to take it away. Mm-hmm. It's a temporary solution, but it, it, it It solves the problem there in the moment to where then, like I said, it just Mm -hmm. becomes instinctual to where this is what I do. This is what I do. Damn the consequences. Damn everything else that's going on that's being wrecked by this because the fact of the matter is is the the more the consequences stack up, the more I want to go get high Mm -hmm. to avoid thinking about all those consequences, to avoid the fact that, you know, uh, I am hurting my family. My grandmother's crying, you know, like to avoid all of that stuff. I just keep going and getting high. Consequences keep piling up. And then eventually, hopefully, you get to a point to where you are able to recognize, hey, these consequences, these are now outweighing the benefits. Mm -hmm. And so I need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think you've talked great about all of this and the stigma that people take in with them to to treatment and to rehab. That direct coordination, they do this work. It's great. They're not leaving um, the center and to start their recovery on this bed of flowers, sunshines. Maybe they are, but the stigma follows them. It's like they think not that they think I don't. I can't personally speak to it, but they don't leave, and it's like no one's ever going to judge them again. Right. It almost it's a different stigma, but it covers. Can you continue? No, that yeah. is definitely one of the biggest stigmas that people in early recovery have is that. I've been branded with a scarlet letter. I've got this big A that stands for addiction. And Mm -hmm. now everybody can tell, everybody can see that I'm in recovery, that I used to, you know, use whatever. All right. And so that now everybody can see this. And, and, And I think that a lot of times that keeps people, it keeps people at bay from 
going out and trying to get involved in the community. Um, mm-hmm. If they do go get involved with anything, maybe hopefully they go get involved with AA or NA, but that they, we think that like, that literally everybody can tell that it's written on mm-hmm. our forehead. Hey, addict, you know, like two weeks ago he was banging heroin or mm-hmm. doing whatever. And it's, it's rooted in guilt. It's rooted in shame. And it's one of those that it just it comes with experience of recognizing that, hey, these people don't know that mm-hmm. they don't know this about me, that life can go on and that this is not following that. I literally don't have a scarlet letter printed mm-hmm. on me They're like I can go meet people and I don't have to first identify by, you know, what my DOC, what my mm-hmm. drug of choice is, mm-hmm. because I think that for so long, all of their. All of our acquaintances when we're in active addiction is, hey, man, you got this. Hey, man, you got that. And so we start to associate with people mm-hmm. that are on that same pathway. And so that, those are the only people that we know. And so that we think that that's what everything revolves around. Uh, around. And, mm-hmm. and, and whenever so much guilt and shame comes into play, uh, one of the big things that I see people in early recovery do is is that they just think that they need to sit at home and like sit on their hands, you mm-hmm. know, and just is that if I'm going to leave the house, I'm only going to a meeting. And that's not going to I mean, that's not changing anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. changing anything. That's where getting involved, finding something that you like to do, some outlet. Mm-hmm. You know, if 16 hours of your day used to be spent nodding out on heroin, you got to find something else to yeah, occupy those right. other 16 hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Because the mental obsession is going to eventually lead you back to using. Mm-hmm. Um, addiction mm-hmm. is definitely a form of OCD, mm-hmm. um, the obsession and then the compulsion that follows it. And so it's about being able to, to, to venture out. Um, but, yeah, addicts carry around a huge stigma of shame and guilt and thinking that everybody, that everybody can see that mm-hmm. they're in recovery. Yeah. And I know my first year I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell people I wasn't out there. And now that I have... So many more people than you realize. And I've met some of the best friends in those rooms. They don't tell your secrets. They're not going to share your stuff. Like, they are going to be there for you when you call at any time of the day. And, like, that community, it almost has, like, empowered me more. Right. And all my other relationships in my job and just life, my family, to be able to be like, hey, no, like, I have these skills. Like you said, determined and other, all these other things that maybe came with my addiction. But it makes me a heck of a good friend and a good worker. Yeah, It's liberating to get that out there. Um the oldest sayings in AA is, you know, your secrets keep you sick, yeah. you know. But it's also one of those things that, like, when everything's out there, then nobody can use anything against you, yeah. you know. Because I've put it all out there. It's all out there. Like, you know, what are you going to use against me when all my secrets have come to light, you know. Like, naming the monster steals some of its power. Exposing mm-hmm. everything to light, the light actually, like, takes some of that away. And mm-hmm. so it is. It's liberating. And I like the fact that you brought in that, like... <laughs> Maybe not. <clears throat> maybe there was a bunch of negative stuff that occurred that came from my drug use. But hey, there's a lot of good things that I learned from being right. in that, from being there as well. Determination, willpower, uh, being able to persevere, determination. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, a lot of good yeah. things that yeah. do that do come from it. Mm-hmm. I want to dig in a little bit and switch from the individual kind of to the families. When you are working with patients, what is the biggest thing you see either from them or from their family members as far as stigma goes? Uh, there's a couple. Um, obviously, the family feels a great amount of guilt and shame a lot of the times. All right. A lot of the times the families, a lot of times the families feel like um, 
then maybe they're the cause. And maybe something that they did caused this addiction. One of the things that uh, it gets said in Al-Anon and Narnon is, is uh, you didn't cause the addiction and you can't cure the addiction. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, but I think that a lot of times that the families do want to, 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 to blame themselves and play that game of what did I do wrong? What did I, you know, did I not show them enough love? Did I not go throw the ball with them? Did I not give them attention? Did I, and, and to just understand that, like, you weren't the cause of that. Mm-hmm. You just weren't. This was, you know, a, 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 a train that was derailed. It was a, run, a runaway train going down the tracks. And, like, you know, you're not what caused it to get to, to, to become runaway. Um, I think that the other thing that that, that that happens with families is that they do want to keep it a secret and that they do want to keep it in and that, hey, we're not going to go seek help. Like, make no mistake, uh, uh, addiction is a family disease, mm-hmm. all right? It doesn't just affect the substance user. It affects everybody that, that is in their family and everybody that's around them. And so that's where the families need to vent, need to get it out, need to talk about how difficult it's been uh, to live with somebody who has been in substance use. And that's where resources such as Al-Anon and Narnon mm-hmm. come into play or so finding some shape, form, or fashion of, of a support group for the family. Um, the other thing that kind of is, is the opposite of that as far as like families wanting to keep it secrets is, is what I was saying earlier is that a, a lot of times this addiction gets passed down from mm-hmm. generation to generation and this is what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just, you know, I mean, it's Tuesday. Let's go get high. Mm-hmm. And that that's what what has become normal for that family. And so that secret's got to get exposed as well. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the individual needing to get away from the family, maybe in that instance that they do. But I think that a lot of times with the families, they're feeling so much guilt. They're feeling so much shame. They're thinking that they are the ones that have failed. Mm-hmm. And they just need to recognize, like I said, they didn't cause it and they can't cure it. Mm-hmm. I love, is that Clark, when we had season one, talked about like when the patient goes into treatment, so should the family. family. Mm-hmm. So should the family. And it's just, it's so true because it's like that web effect of one person takes down, you know, a family, the family takes down their people around them. And it's just, it can spread like wildfire. One, one of the coolest things that I've seen is whenever I did work with uh, uh, troubled teens is those kids were there for an undetermined amount of time. Um, we said that in general, the program was 12 to 18 months, but the longest I ever saw a kid there was like 26 months. Mm-hmm. There, they had a family program that went right along with, and the family was had a stage system that they were mm-hmm. trying to work, just like the kid had a stage system that they were trying to work. And, and that's one of the most creative tools that I've seen. Here, 30 days of treatment, we have a family program, and I know that's one weekend a month, come get a little bit of a addiction psychoeducation. But uh, I, I think that, like, the family should definitely be, if nothing else, should be in family counseling mm-hmm. to talk about this. But for sure, they, you just remove... You just remove the addict from the family unit and the family unit doesn't do anything to heal. And then you introduce it right back. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's, again, insanity. You Mm -hmm. know what's going to eventually transpire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the web, you have the families that can probably pull down their people and the community at large. What's some of the stigma we see and we experience around that? Uh, This gets right back into the whole not looking at it from the disease standpoint is that as society at large does not, I mean, Yes, it's 2023. Yes, stuff has been out. But I think that at large, people still view this as being a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, the, other th- the other society, I mean, 
the other society community aspect of it that comes into play is um it, it is the simple fact that there aren't resources available to send people to treatment mm-hmm. yes you have to have some shape form or fashion of insurance to go to private uh, a, a private facility and that's just we're doing an injustice there and I'm not going to go off on a rant about insurance, but if somebody had cancer, is the insurance company going to deny them days for cancer treatment? No. If they have diabetes, is the cancer is the insurance going to pay for them to have their insulin, pay for them to have their needles, pay for them to have the things? Yes. Uh, somebody with celiac, are they going to pay for that? Yes, they are. We have to fight the insurance companies to keep people in treatment for 30 days. And I, again, I think that that all goes right back to the fact that Wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, it's a disease. If you really thought that it was a disease, then we wouldn't be having a fight to get people 30 days of treatment. And so I just think that it goes back to that whole stigma of that this is a choice, that this is uh, uh, that they are choosing to be this way. This also this also gets into like, um, I don't know, one of the greatest failings that I've seen in my lifetime was the 1980s. Just say no. All right. (laughs) Just say no obviously did not work. But what, what went right along with the just say no was uh, 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 Bush Sr. with the whole, we're going to incarcerate everybody. That if you've got, if, if you get caught with dope, you get caught with drugs, any shape, form, or fashion, we're just going to throw you in jail. And you throw them in, in jail, but you're not doing anything about it while they're in jail. You're not offering them treatment. You're not offering them uh, rehabilitation in jail. We're just going to throw them into jail. And that has obviously not worked either. Um, and so as far as the stigma that's a, that comes from the community, I think it's just it's still it's the way that we view them. We view them as we view substance users as being criminals, as being people who made this God awful choice. So let's just isolate and keep them over there. Keep those people over there failing to recognize that like one of the easiest things to do would be to actually like help to mm-hmm. actually encourage treatment, to actually make treatment for everybody accessible pass some law with insurance to where the insurance company can find a loophole within 30 days of why they don't have to pay to send this person to substance abuse treatment. I think that's such a good observation. And one of the things that I've been thinking about as you all have been talking is this idea that like when we're not, when we stigmatize the people who are in, you know, substance use, active addiction, whatever the case may be, we're missing out on them as human beings, yes. right? You you have both talked about they're determined. They have amazing adaptive capacities. They are some of the kindest, gener- most generous people I've ever met in the, on, in the face of the planet. And despite what we like to think about, how we like to think about this as it relates to stigma, every one of us has at least one or two or three or a half a dozen in our circles, right? These are people who are our friends, our neighbors, our family members. So how do we keep those two things afloat, right? They're them. They're the bad people that have made these awful decisions. But then they're my sister, my mom, my dad, my aunt, my cousin, my best friend, my uncle, my neighbor, whatever the case may be. That cognitive dissonance that that keep those two things alive at the same time seems really weird to me. Um, And what a great disservice. We're, We're worried about finding people jobs. We're worried about advancing things. We're worried about, you know, all of these, all of this kind of social economic things that are going on and we're disregarding a huge a significant portion of our population because we're not offering the kinds of services that you're talking about we are making them feel shame and guilt and all of these things over something they can't control right. we don't we don't blame people because they have cancer we fix it 
Right. We do our best to fix it, right? And I think that I think flipping that script upside down, like what are we missing out on? Mm-hmm. What are we missing out on when we don't engage with this with these folks mm-hmm. who have so much to offer the world? Um, once they've gone through something that has been, like you said, nobody makes a choice to wake up one morning and be like, you know what, I'm going to ruin my life today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, over the course of you know whatever amount of time it takes, I'm going to just take the ship down. Nobody chooses that, but they've come back. And what resilience and what power is in that process to, to pick themselves back up, reorganize themselves, and enter the world. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's an amazing opportunity that we're lacking, that we're, we're looking past when we don't think about these things. Yeah. Their ability to rebuild, redesign, and reclaim. Um, but I, I would even go further than you said, you know, like my mother and my sister, I'm sorry, everybody's addicted to something, mm-hmm. all right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, everybody's addicted wrong. to yeah. something. Yeah. It may not be something that's killing you in the process, right. all right? But everybody's mm-hmm. everybody's got their routines. Everybody's got their habits. Everybody wants their you know, morning coffee or whatever right. it right. is. It just so happens that your addiction is not killing you where their addiction is. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's so much easier to, to see that because they have done this, that the, the, it, it, it's a lot easier to, 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 to view it, to see it, that, mm-hmm. hey, they've lost this amount of weight, that, hey, they've been evicted from their house, they've lost custody of their kids, they've ruined these relationships, they've wrecked this many cars. It's a lot more like, I don't know, out there. It's mm-hmm. a lot more mm-hmm. like in your face. But everybody's got some shape, mm-hmm. form, or fashion that they have an addiction to something, whatever that is. Well, I did think about that earlier, and I didn't want to equivocate them thinking that they, that would, might not be appropriate. But I think about like you, you, this idea of when you were talking about kind of making the choice to walk across the, the dew field and, and then turning that into the grass bending down and then the, then the dirt path because you walk it. So all of us have those. Like every morning, if I don't do my routine, I throw my whole day off. That's exactly – that's human brains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. drive are driven by patterns right driven because we're lazy creatures we want the shortest route to whatever happiness or whatever right. satisfaction that mm-hmm. we get from that right. that's a human failing that's a human being existence issue um and like you said for some folks it just gets put on notice in a mm-hmm. different kind of way than like my not having my coffee in the morning or my not whatever the case may be right right um i mean i'm sure you can find plenty of people around this town that will not put their phone down or when they do put their phone down it's right. like they shake right <laughs> right don't even get me started <laughs> right. no totally true though totally true yeah. uh, i love this conversation um and to kind of wrap up and hone in on what we've talked about and kind of leave people with actions because we've had this conversation and i could have this conversation forever mm-hmm. about recovery and my friends all know it and so how would you challenge people to start different conversations this week with themselves, their family, and their community? I'm going to go back to the experiential thing. Come on. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. I don't, not conversations. All right. Um, this is the conversation. Yeah. But actually do something. Yes. Actually go somewhere. Actually learn something. I would challenge everybody to go to a meeting. All right. They're real mm-hmm. easy to find. Yes. NA.org, AA.org, you can find, you can look up and find the meetings that are in your area mm-hmm. and they will tell you if the meeting is open or closed. If it's open, that means that it's open to the public. Anybody can go and just go in there and sit in that meeting and listen to what goes on. You don't have to share. You don't, you can just be a fly on the wall and observe and you're going to see love. You're going to mm-hmm. see harmony. You're mm-hmm. going to see uh, uh, serenity. Um, but just realize that they're not those people, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, there's, there's this notion that, that addicts are 
this people that are off on skid row, you know, but it's, it's like you said that like, it's not, it's the people that we know, uh, brothers, sisters. Um, but there's, there, there, there's people that you probably know mm-hmm. that you may not know that they struggle with addiction, but to just go and just humanize them. Mm-hmm. All right. See them for who they are as people, as opposed to whatever label you want to, you want to put it on. And, and then my other challenge is is, is, is to find out about the disease mm-hmm. and figure and find out about the disease as far as, as addiction being a disease. Learn about that, because I think that that starts to change people's way it, it, is the more that we understand that this is a disease. It's not a choice that that starts to take that stigma away. But then it also educates to where, OK, maybe now I am going to view them the same way as I would view somebody with diabetes or somebody with cancer or somebody uh, with heart disease. Um, is to just look at them as people mm-hmm. and to look at them as people who have struggles. They may be different struggles than what you're having, but they're just people who have struggles and to learn about this, about this disease of addiction. Um, there's several good documentaries. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. anonymous people would be one I would throw out. Um, then there's a really good one that teaches straight up about the disease. It's called pleasure unwoven by Dr. Kevin McCauley is another mm-hmm. in that sh- he breaks it down and makes it kind of entertaining and fun and, and explains how this is a disease. Um, if you're looking for another resource on how to figure out that this is a disease, uh, a little shameless plug here. Yes, um, yes. I will, be, uh, I will be doing part one of uh, my four-part Hijack Brain Lecture Series on September uh, 28th. I think that's the right date yes. on a Thursday at 6 p.m. at, um, I think it's... Is it Bryant Hall? Yes, Bryant Hall, Hall, room 209. Um, I promise uh, it won't be boring. I can promise that. Um, I do get animated, and the more people that are there that participate, the more animated and the more (laughs) performance-oriented I get with it. But that it it won't be boring. Um, It will be entertaining, um, and you may actually learn something. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I break it down to where it's pretty simple i'm not a scientist i'm not a doctor and i'm not trying to talk over anybody's head uh, I, I break it down and make it yes it's it's extremely complicated uh no it's extremely complex but it doesn't have to be complicated yeah and so if nothing else um please come to that shameless plug but that's my challenge yes. is to learn more about it become involved um I know they have tents set up in the grove yes. that are like, you know, that are, that are, that are sober tailgates. Mm-hmm. Um, see that those people are having just as much fun as the people two tents down that are absolutely wasted, yep. mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. Get involved. Learn something. Figure out about this disease. And, and, and my challenge is, is to start to view these people as people who just suffer from, from a disease because that's who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's. No question. Uh, mine's more experiential. We Let's love. go do I like something. Yes. I like it. No. And that's yes. exactly what we're aiming yeah. for this season. Um, thank you so much for making the time to be here today. And just in relation to your talk, it's open to the public. It so is. anybody who's not an Ole Miss student, you find a place to park. You can yep. come to Bryant Hall and, and hear your first part of your talk. Yes. And I will say I witnessed or was at one of your talks last year. It's a great time. You learn a lot, um, and you have an amazing. You all had heard witness to this today. Amazing way of explaining all of this, and a terribly complex 
subject, but in a way that's understandable and approachable and, and really works towards humanizing the folks who are suffering with this disease. So thank you so much for making the time to be here today. Yes, it was thank a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you all for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab Podcast. The Mayo Lab Podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Jeter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, Slade Lewis, and Hannah Finch. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab Podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab podcast, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, and their guests on the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.